Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Lori Elizabeth Flynn is the author of The Girls Are All So Nice Here, a novel. She's a former model who lives in London, Ontario with her husband and three children. She's the author of three young adult novels, firsts, a YALSA best fiction for young adults pick, along with Last Girl Lied To and All Eyes on Her under the name L.E. Flynn. Her adult debut, The Girls Are All So Nice Here, has sold in nine territories and has been optioned for television by AMC. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Girls Are All So Nice Here, a novel. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm thrilled to be able to come on and talk to everyone. Awesome. So for those who aren't familiar with the plot of this book, what is this book about? It's been pitched as a darker, more disturbing Mean Girls with a touch of, I know what you did last summer. So I think that's (laughs) the best elevator pitch for the book. I think it holds up pretty well. It's a dual timeline story. It revolves around a college reunion and the main character, Ambrosia Wellington, receives an invitation to her 10-year college reunion. And she immediately doesn't want to go because she's hiding an incident that happened in her past when she was in freshman year. However, she receives a note along with the invitation that says, we need to talk about what we did that night. And she feels that she has no choice but to go because she believes she knows who the note is from. And she's more afraid of what will happen if she doesn't go. However, when she gets to the reunion, she realizes that the note is not from the person she thought. And it turns out she's being circled by somebody who, somebody else who knows what happened that night and who wants revenge. I mean, that's a great pitch. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) How did you come up with this? I was reading this and I was like, I wonder if she came up with this because she got an email about her reunion and was like, what if, what if, what if? Is that what happened or did I just make that up? (laughs) No, I've actually never been to a reunion. I think like I knew I wanted to set a story on a college campus. So that was my, what I like kind of went into this story with. And I didn't have anything plotted. I just, because I don't usually plot ahead of time. I just kind of write So I kind of had this idea for a reunion as the perfect framework and having the two timelines each set at the same campus, but with, and with largely the same cast of characters, but with sort of different outcomes and having those secrets from the past fuel what's happening in the present and have these reveals kind of peel back. So the, really the only thing I knew when I started writing was that I wanted to explore that college setting, especially, I just think it's so rife for exploration. For a lot of people, it's their first time living away from home. There's a lot of intense pressure to rebrand yourself and align yourself with the right friends. And I thought there was so much to explore there that would also make for a really interesting framework for a psychological thriller. So true. How do you pronounce Am? Ambrosia? You call her Am? Yep. 
A M B. I don't know. One of the scenes I liked the most was when she was in, I think, the cafeteria getting to know the different girls when she first got to school and was trying so hard. Like you captured that moment so well of like, okay, so this girl who was like even more sort of unsavory than she viewed herself as comes and like sits next to them. And she's like, okay, good. Like we've got that girl, but like, I want to be friends with that girl. But now she's looped me in with this other girl because we're both from New Jersey. And it was like this whole, like you could just feel her being pulled and like, why is the, the cooler girl essentially like not talking to me? And, and then of course the roommate who is like this, you know, I don't know, Draper James clad type, you know, Southern, <laughs> Southern belle ish, but just that sort of feeling like, oh no, my moment is passing. And like, if you group me with the wrong person, then that's it for me forever. Right. <laughs> Tell me just a little more about sort of those moments and those like very fraught friendship. Like it's almost like the, the social intelligence, you know, games, like, like it's like a video game of like, what women do all the time with their networks, you know, it's like a Pac-Man or something. Yeah. I think that was just something as I started writing that I knew the story was going to be a, a big focus is the, these relationships between women and things that some people might not even pick up on when you're not in that dynamic, but that most women, I think we can all relate to that feeling where you're wanting to be portrayed a certain way, especially when you've started college and it's a fresh start from high school. And if you feel like you were uncool in high school or, you know, you want to get out of that stereotype everybody had you in in high school, you feel like you only have that one first shot. And that scene that you're talking about, I I remember writing it and feeling like flashbacks almost to like those awkward feeling. And, oh my God, did I, did they blow my opportunity to, to make an impression on these cooler people and be seen as one of them. And I think that insecurity and that vulnerability is so real that we have all felt at one stage in our life, but it's especially fitting when you are starting at a new job or a new school or any sort of new environment, there's so much pressure, both internal and external to come across a certain way. And in Ambrosia's case, she is coming off of a high school experience where she was blindsided by a cheating ex-boyfriend. She feels kind of expendable and she wants to be seen. She wants attention. She wants validation for herself. And when she sees these cool girls, she's both intimidated by them and fascinated by them. And she knows immediately that she doesn't want to be like one of the uncool people. However, having them around is a source of comfort for her because she feels like she doesn't have to impress them. Whereas the cool girls, especially Sloan Sullivan, she feels like she has to always be increasingly escalating in her behavior to sort of stay within their orbit. And I think that's something that that a lot of young women can relate to as well. And having that that pressure to, you know, keep appearances and to keep up with the group. I think it also you know, her entry into college where she realizes like the things that made her cool at Central or wherever she went to high school were actually totally different criteria than what would make her cool in college and that she was wearing these like skin tight dresses and like had to look a certain way and carry like saved up all her money to buy the Louis Vuitton purse. And then in college, she's like, oh, no, 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 this is like totally not right. And to the point where she leaves the Louis Vuitton purse like on the floor at a party, I was like, there is no way she would have done that. Like, I'm like, I have to like scamper into this novel and snatch that up and like resell this purse because come on, really? (laughs) But it's so true. And it's also like when you think about the advice that you get in high school and like all these awkward times of like personal development, if you will, 
like to be yourself or whatever that means. Like this constantly changing goalposts are just this are just a reinforcement of that. Like what's cool one place isn't cool the other place. You might as well just like do what you think is cool deep down, right? Or, but but it's like impossible at that time. What was your I mean, was that your experience? So true. You can like, you know, get familiar and feel like you're totally on top of the, the code at wherever you came from. And it's like, you finally figured it out. You finally figured out how to dress cool and how to, you know, how to act, how to talk and, you know, to sort of assimilate with these cool girls. And then it's, you get to a new campus or a new setting and it's a whole new ballpark. And you realize that what was counted as really cool back home might not be the same. And I really wanted to lean into that because I think it's, it's also something that's really relatable and that made am really relatable is that she, yeah, she has this, she's sort of abiding by the code of cool from the place she came from. And that's like, you know, flaunting your designer labels if you can. And she's like, you said, she saved all her money to buy this, the it bag, the monogrammed bag so that everyone would know that she had a Louis Vuitton bag. And then she gets to, to Wesleyan and the girls are so much more understated with their labels. They're not having to flaunt anything. They're not wearing these skin tight jeans and like sky high heels to show off all the time. And she sort of realizes that she's not going to be immediately cool and she has to figure out how to stand out. And obviously as the book goes on, she stands out in some pretty bad ways. Yes. (laughs) You also have this interesting thing about Instagram influencers because you know, Billy is an, her friend Billy is an influencer. And you said she has an online persona blog called Girl Mom that became an Instagram account. And she has like 30,000 followers and hashtag two under two and moms who wear their babies like clingy purses over skin tight yoga pants. But then you write, I don't have, this is Am talking, Ambrosia. I don't have Instagram for that reason because I don't want to cultivate a hashtag no filter life, a pastiche of fake smiles. I learned at Wesleyan that people don't envy the girls who are the smartest and prettiest. They envy the ones who are smart and pretty without trying. Unlike Billy's, my attempt at effortlessness played out live. There was no delete button, no way to undo. That was great. Love that. Thank you. So cool. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of the pressure there to, you know, it's one thing to be envious of somebody, but I think the real envy comes from that carelessness. When you, when you look at someone who seems to have it effortlessly together, and that's sort of what I was going for there. I feel like no one has it effortlessly together. I mean, is that even a thing? Does that happen? Uh, I I definitely don't, but (laughs) I think it's so, it's so easy to portray online that you do by showing this highlight reel. And I think so many people have bought into it that it's easy to fall into that Instagram scrolling and sort of see all these other people's lives and compare yourself to them and wonder why you're not as together or polished. But I think like everyone's life is not what it appears on Instagram. And obviously when Ambrosia is growing up, there is no Instagram, but she still finds herself envious of these girls who everything seems to come easy to like Sully can eat whatever she wants and doesn't gain weight and all these things like that. And, and Am realizes that nobody wants to see the work put into something ever and just wants to see that, how that effortlessness will play out. I've spent so much time thinking about that whole concept of being able to eat whatever you want and not gain weight. I feel like I've changed that in my head so many times as I've, cause I've sort of like, you know, always had this like battle with 
pounds and whatever else. And, you know, when I was like deep into like Weight Watcher land, I was like, oh, I can eat whatever I want and not gain weight because I want different things. Like it's the middle word. It's like what you want has to change. Then you can eat anything. And now I'm like, I can eat whatever I want and not gain weight because I weigh like (laughs) so much more that like now basically I can maintain, but like look where I am. So (laughs) I don't know. I've spent a lot of time with that phrase in my head. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about your process of writing this book. Well, my process is that I don't plot ahead of time. So I kind of just started with this campus idea and let things unspool. And I wrote the past tense timeline first, the freshman year, because I I tried to write like one chapter and then one chapter of the present and it just wasn't working. It felt really disjointed. So I just kind of quit that and wrote the entire freshman year timeline first. And then I went back in and wrote the reunion timeline and printed out both timelines and spliced them together. It was an interesting process because the the first draft of this book was like 130,000 words. It was huge. And it was, there's a lot of stuff that obviously ended up completely not, never making it into the book for good reason. But that's sort of my process. I My first drafts tend to be kind of bulky, but I think it's just because I'm getting to know these characters and some of the scenes I'm writing, as I'm even as I'm writing them, I know they're not going to make it into the book, but it's sort of just allowing me to get into their headspace. And once I sort of was able to figure out what needed to be deleted and what wasn't important to the plot or advancing things, I cut that out. I I remember fit, like physically having piles of papers all over the floor and like multiple piles so I could, one for each chapter and kind of trying to put them together in an order that made sense. And then going back in and finessing it from there. And that was that was the process. It certainly wasn't glamorous. It was <laughs> it was a lot of finessing and trying to figure out what scenes needed to go where to and what reveals from the past would inform the present. And so the timing had to be right. And luckily it once it came together, I you know, I felt I felt good about it. It was funny, even though I wrote the timeline separately. It was like my subconscious was at work the whole time and sort of allowed me to put them together in a way that flowed nicely, which was good. (laughs) You have this pillow behind you on the couch, sorry to like snoop into the background of your Zoom, called Don't Overthink. (laughs) Is that something you had to remind yourself with the book or is this more like in your personal life? Oh, that's my writing life. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I saw that pillow at the store and I was like, I need to take that home with me because I find that it if I get too much in my head when I'm working, I don't get anything accomplished. I just, my inner editor will take over and, and it's just so frustrating because I, I get in these moments where I won't even, everything I put on paper, I feel like isn't good enough immediately. So instead of thinking that way and trying to have perfection the first time around, I just sort of give myself permission, especially with these first drafts to just make a mess a little bit and then know that it'll all be cleaned up later and and revised, but that, the canvas needs to exist first. <laughs> I was trying to write something this morning and every time I started, I was like doing that same thing. I was like editing myself so much I couldn't even like really get into it. So finally at the top, I just put draft one of three so that I would like trick myself that like, it's okay because you're going to do like two more of these after. So let's just like do the first one and then like get to it. And then once I started, it was easier. But anyway, that's how I tricked myself today. <laughs> that's, that's good. I like that. <laughs> how did you end up being a novelist? How did this happen in, in your whole life? You said you were a former model. What was that? I mean, 
tell me about how you went from modeling to writing to, you know. Yeah, it seems like very, like two totally separate careers. And it really, it is. But interestingly enough, like modeling was something I did in my early 20s and some some of my teens as well, but mostly my early 20s. And I feel like it, in a lot of ways, prepared me for the world of writing because modeling's a lot of, you know, rejection as well. So it's it's interesting when I started out writing, I kind of had the thick skin built up already from being in an industry where rejection is rampant and that where you have to not take things personally. So when I decided I wanted to write and I wrote it, finally wrote a book and started querying it and got all the rejections, <laughs> I remember, you know, it's hard at first not to take it personally, but I kind of got into that mindset where I took feedback as constructive and I didn't take any of those rejections personally. And I just kind of applied everything to working on the next thing. And I also went to journalism school. I thought that's what I was going to do with my writing, but I, I, and I think part of it was, I didn't think fiction was writing fiction was like a actual lifestyle, like a career. And I talked myself out of it because I I just thought it was too far-fetched and I was trying to be more practical, but journalism really didn't give me that fulfillment. I, I think it, I'm really glad I went into journalism because I think it did help my writing a lot and I'm grateful for that experience. But I think I, it made me realize more than anything that I needed to tell my own stories and that I had these fiction ideas and it was time to see what happened with them, even if nothing happened. And I think a lot of it was the fear of failure and the fear of the unknown. So I was a secret writer for a lot of years where I, you know, barely anyone knew what I was doing just because I was so afraid of putting it out there and then having people ask so many questions about, Oh, when's your book coming out? And, And then, you know, feeling that, that, you know, feeling of failure from both other people and myself. So I, kept it a secret for a while. And, you know, I wrote two books in secret that well, they're, they're, they're definitely were not good enough. They were my starter books and I'm grateful for them for teaching me a lot. And then I published three young adult books before the girls are also nice here came out. So that's sort of my trajectory. <laughs> when you were modeling, what did you, did you do? Like what type of modeling did you do? I don't talk to that many um, models. Yep. I did like runway work and magazines as well. So yeah, it was, seems like a totally different lifestyle now, like a totally different life, wow. but it was fun. And I, I will say it did inspire some of the, the themes in my work because anytime you put all these young women together, you're going to get compared and you're going to get competition, even though these are your friends and people that you know, it's still, you know, that judgment and that being analyzed and that that's the thing where women are sort of pitted against each other almost, which are themes that sort of factor in my work a lot. Wow. And what's coming next for you? You have another book in the works? I do. I'm working on my second adult novel right now, which is sort of a bridesmaids meets Jillian Flynn is how I've sort of pitched it. So it's sort of goes into the stereotypes and the expectations of the wedding industry placed on women, which I think there's so much to to say about. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been working on. I'm excited about it. And I'm excited to share more when I, when I can. This is great because you start with college and now you're going to the wedding and now we can, you know, eventually maybe you'll get to motherhood or like, you know what I mean? You're going to go through all these life stages, you know? Exactly. Perfect. (laughs) I love it. Excellent. Well, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? I think just to 
write anything and just don't try not to edit yourself and critique yourself too much because that's where I got hung up in those early days was just, I, you know, I'd have an idea in my head. I'd try to get it on paper. It wouldn't come out how I expected and I'd get frustrated and I would just give up for a few days or a few weeks even, or just feel like I wasn't good enough or I wasn't telling the story I wanted to tell. And it wasn't until I sort of gave myself permission to, to not tell exactly what was in my head and to let things have a life of their own and to not be so hard on myself that I actually started to get in a groove with writing and actually make progress with my book because, you know, you can sit there and look at a blank word document and be frustrated with yourself. And it's so easy to do that. But I think just giving yourself permission to write, even if it's, even if you know you're going to delete it later, or even if you know, it's not great. Or if you feel like every word's terrible, I still have days like that. I, I don't think it ever goes away. And I think that just writing through it and trusting your subconscious and trusting your instincts and believing that you have this, nobody can tell the story except for you and sort of just believing in those parts of yourself, which is easier said than done. I think that's my top piece of advice. And then also just to read widely, read all the time and read different genres, read and figure out what makes a book great. If you've read a book and loved it and you think, you know, this I want to write something like this. I think it's just a matter of looking at it critically and figuring out, well, what worked from that book? What, what made it so great? Because looking at books that I love critically, I, I feel like it's always a good exercise. And if I'm feeling stuck and, you know, it's just sort of looking at what worked for, for that story and then trying to figure out what works for your story. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Lori. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Now Time to Read Books to discuss the girls are all so nice here. I love it. Love the lipstick. I hope you're doing some like clever thing with this like lipstick promotion. You should be like sending out lipsticks or something, especially with your amazing lipstick on your lips. (laughs) My Canadian team at Simon & Schuster actually had a lipstick designed called Ambrosia. It's beautiful. I was like, that is the coolest thing to ever happen to me as an author because I love lipstick so much I'm totally obsessed with it so that was pretty neat wow well you should like sell that on your website because I would totally buy it. <laughs> I'm serious think about it anyway all right thank you so much it was lovely chatting today thank you so much okay take care bye-bye bye thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 